So, honest question, Tom Franz. Do you like the way Birkenstock sandals look like? I, you know, it's one of those where through the process of doing this research, and I think just them being around a lot more, they've really grown on me. But I would say if I was honest, it's really only through kind of learning a lot more through the brands. And it's incredible what the background and history and culture of a brand can can make you change your perception. Yeah, super easy answer from my side. I like them when others wear them, like when some people wear them and I just can't bear the look of them on my feet. Oh, interesting. Like it's so personal in my opinion, like it either like is the best fashion item for some person or it's like a complete miss. And for me, it's just, I, I don't know. I just can't look at myself wearing British socks. But I've seen a lot of people, like especially this, the first one, the Madrid thing on uh, ladies looks really good on some people. Um, and the Arizona on men looks really good on some people, but also on some, it's like, <laughs> just, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. And for me, it doesn't fit, unfortunately, because I would love them to to fit. Mm. Yeah, I'm there. I'm I'm with both you, both of you. Like it when I saw them for the first time, it was like, oh, that's like something my parents would wear, and that's something my parents did wear. <laughs> that also makes it harder, you know, to fall in love. But then at a certain point, I think it just like you know um, took a turn with some of new silhouettes, and just they became cool. So yeah, I think I'm not like in love with them, but also do like them. Um, and at, at Tom, I think it's also a lot about doing the research and mm. uh, having friends who wear them and so on. But um, one other thing we have to clear up before we go into this episode is how do we pronounce this company's name? So first, Tom, you should go ahead with the UK version. So how do you pronounce <laughs> the company's name? And then Franz will give us the correct one. I was going to say, Franz, there's a couple of names that you might need to assist with in, in this episode. Um, I mean, I've been saying a Birkenstock, although obviously if you're a cool Gen Z, you call them Burks, but yeah, Birkenstock. No. Alan, how do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll just let Franz go. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> okay. I'll stand with Tom now and make you do it, Alan. Birkenstock? Uh, that's close. close so right, there yeah. are two. There is the I in the Birk and then the S in the stock which can uh, be mistakes so it's birkenstock uh, in Ash, German. okay 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 of course just full disclosure i'm not going to be trying to pronounce it like that throughout this episode sorry fans <laughs> uh but uh another cliffhanger there's actually one um find that i made in the uh in the research that only a German-speaking person can explain to you. Mm. So I'm very sure that you didn't have this find in your research. Not Burgewolters gehen? Is that the one? No. Okay, good. <laughs> but I like how you tried. <laughs> Alrighty. I mean, as you can see, dear listeners, we are diving into Birkenstock company today. Um, so what we do in this episode is we take a darling of a design community, a company, a service, a product that design community generally loves, and we take a look at the business side of that very product or company. And yeah, that's why it's called Teardowns. 
Um, so Tom, you're going to start with a little bit of the history and why we love the brand, right? Yeah. And like I say, this is a brand that my, my love levels <clears throat> have gone from, I would say, five ten percent to like ninety percent in the course of this research so um did not think i would be uh coming into this podcast as such a fanboy but i'm really sorry <laughs> that's kind of how it's <laughs> played out so yeah in today's teardown we're stepping into the world of footwear for the first time um tearing down a brand that's been around for over two centuries which blows my mind i had no idea they've been around that long well more than the, yeah all this company we've covered right that yeah. was going to be one of my questions. Is this the oldest company? I guess, I think so. um, yeah, no one comes close, I don't think. So, yeah, no. record to be broken maybe in future. And I think they, this company, Baconstock, calls themselves the oldest startup on earth. Did Do you see they? that? No, I didn't yeah. see that. I like that. <laughs> I like that because we, we, we're going to get into that. But a lot of their, um, actually, a lot of their philosophy and approach that they've had for, you know, couple of centuries is actually quite um contemporary a lot of the stuff around sustainability and controlled yeah. growth and stuff but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later but yeah this brand has survived massive shifts in culture and taste um enjoyed the sort of rise and fall of countless fashion trends but amazingly um for me the core product the sort of materials and the company philosophy really hasn't changed very much at all during that time um, that might be changing based on some events from the last few weeks. We'll see how that affects things. But yeah, on the whole, a couple hundred years of really sticking to their guns. So you know, one of the reasons I really admire them and we'll get into that. Um, but yeah, this is a brand famous for being sort of unapologetically about functionality of its products, right? Um, and because of that, and because they're a fashion product that is very functional, they've always really split opinion. Um, so I guess why you asked that question at the beginning right alan because we have the express this expression uh in england of things being like marmite you either love them or hate them uh, marmite's like this yeast spread thing and i think people generally aren't on the fence when it comes to a brand like birkenstock so yeah some people will call it designs like a timeless classic others are like they're downright ugly wouldn't be seen dead in them uh and i've gone from that camp into the classic camp <laughs> in the space <laughs> of a few days so i need to jump in here because here that just reminds me of my first um experience with Birkenstocks. you know when this was it was primary school primary school okay so my mom bought me Birkenstocks, <laughs> and then mysterically I lost them. <laughs> and for the <laughs> people who didn't see, yeah. <laughs> and for the people who are listening to this and not um, watching this, I used air quotes because obviously I, I purposefully, I don't know, lost them because they were like the most uncool, um, let's say, yeah, uncool sandals that somebody could wear at school. Because that was the purpose of this, right? So you mm -hmm. would go to primary school, you couldn't be, and you couldn't go there with your usual shoes, but you had to wear uh, mm -hmm. sandals inside. And my mom wanted to do something good for me, bought Birkenstocks. Um, good man. Back it's in the 90s, I think, yeah, only Kate Moss back in the days also had the same taste as I had. <laughs> you and Kate Moss, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I hated like them. You hated them. Yeah, I, yeah, hated I can them. understand that. 
I mean, that was I, the, it, it's tough turning up at the playground is something you hate. And were, were many of your school friends wearing them, or were you were you just you know trendsetting? I don't know. I can't remember. I just it was just the boring version of everything. Like, like teachers would wear them. Uh, like yeah. you wouldn't want to wear them. So that reminded me of your love going from 5% to <laughs> uh, 90%. I don't know what you said, but for me, it was like minus, minus, minus 90%. <laughs> God. We can all remember those items that we had to wear for school. I remember my mom forced me to wear this like sheepskin coat. I looked like a like used car dealer. Um, I absolutely hated it. I think I tried <laughs> to throw it into a hedge. Um, but didn't it didn't have Birkenstocks? I mean, now you'd be the drippiest kid in the playgrounds. Like everyone would be yeah. like, yeah, especially with some cool color, like bright yellow, neon yellow. That would be dope. Sure. They <laughs> yeah. were dark blue. Mate, I think yeah. you could still pull that off. We get we'll get him some ordered on the DMBA oh, no, account. That's also the the most boring color. But anyhow, yeah, that's how the that's how my story with the brand started. Without knowing it was actually a brand, I just thought it was like ugly sandals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you you know now you're learned. You know you wish you yeah. had them back. But yeah, these sandals they've graced the feet of everyone from students to little friends to a list celebrities and definitely designers. I think definitely become a bit of a West Coast thing the last few years, and obviously they're just everywhere now. Um, so yeah. And this is a brand that's been making shoes since 1774. Like we already said, this is probably, well, it's definitely the oldest brand um, we've ever done uh, a teardown for. So, yeah, next question was going to be, and I mean, Franz has already uh, answered this question, but maybe there's more recent history, was have either of you ever owned a pair of Birkenstocks? And if not, what put you off? And if yes, what do you love about them? So, Franz, since you're um difficult childhood with uh your, your mum forcing you to wear sandals to school have you been an owner since then uh i haven't uh i actually really wanted to so i had a friend who wore them with pride and i think also wore them with utmost style so it was really yeah perfect for him uh so i tried them on and i was like yeah no just unfit. So <laughs> that was the end of the very, um, it was a very, um, yeah, quick end to my story with Birkenstock. Uh, what put you off I though? Like to... when you looked in the mirror with them on, was it, was it the, the, the feel? Was it, you just felt like you looked out of place in them? What, what, what was it? Yeah. I think it's just like, I can't even explain, but uh, yeah, feeling out of place is maybe the closest um explanation for that right okay alan what about you yeah i knew you're gonna ask this so i brought my uh hey, so <laughs> <Arizona>. nice <laughs> yeah oh there is some hair in them so what do you uh, love about your arizonas <laughs> they, they look they look like they've had some good wear so yeah what yeah. what made you first buy them what is it that you clearly i'm not, um, not going to project and say you love them but they look like they've had a good good amount of wear yeah, no, for sure. I mean, look. So, as I said before, for a good, uh, for a good portion of my life, I didn't find them, uh, yeah, attractive, and I was like, no, I'm not gonna wear this. But then there was this like uh, moment seven, eight years ago, where at that time my girlfriend bought, uh, I think it's called Gizeh, mm, the silhouette, sort of um, uh, more like a flip flop or a thong if you're Australian, yeah, that kind yeah, of, just shape. like one. Mm. Yeah, and that looked amazing. 
and um, uh, then I just kind of started to change the perception of the brand and so on and I started to get into functional wear myself mm-hmm. so when um, a summer was coming up a few years back and I needed the sandals and I was just close to a store with Birkenstocks and I was like okay let's let's do it let's see what the hype is about and uh yeah like I don't have a lot of emotions to the shoe to the sandals itself like I think they're good they're functional I love wearing them even like in our apartment building when I need to go down and like pick up uh uh post the packages and so on because it's super easy to put on even now like it's winter already almost and I have my socks on and I can just still put my foot in the sandals the same thing in the summer it's just super convenient they are durable um I don't love the look of them to be mm-hmm. honest but I think like they fit with everything just good enough so you can put them on and just wear them uh but in the process of the research I figured out oh maybe I just went with the wrong color or something so I am considering a uh, post research purchase mm. for next summer uh, but that would be the completely the, the rubber version because i need oh, something okay. for the beach you know right yes yeah interesting i'm sure we might get into some of the um, moves that they've made product wise because that one felt a little uncomfortable to me actually um the whole move into rubber stuff but is what it is um question for you because a lot of my research um i was kind of reading reviews and watching reviews of uh of them and people said that the breaking in process is hellish like blister central how did you find breaking them in did you notice that it was like difficult or no, painful it was no? super smooth no okay. trouble i don't i mean honestly i don't remember it was like four or five years ago but yeah. if i don't remember then probably yeah it was fine for What's me problem? Yeah. yeah i also I know they're selling two different types of like silhouette, like the the how is it called the footbeds. So mm-hmm. one is for narrow feet and one is for the regular feet. I think they call it. So maybe it was also like that's what could be the problem with some of these people who are trying to break into it. But right, no, no issue for me. So am I understanding this correctly? That I'm only one with Birkenstocks in this call now. Yeah, I really, yeah. I really want some now. But the problem is, um, I have some sandals made by Clarks um, that are very, very similar to an Arizona um, that I really only wear on holiday, and I, I can't justify like buying another pair of sandals when I already have some. So maybe when they wear out, I'll get some. But yeah, I would, I would like a pair. They do, they do look great and um, sound really comfy. So yeah, still, not, still not, time, not, time, yeah, still time. But um, so yeah, you still might be listening to this thinking, Birkenstocks though, aren't those you know the ugly sandals that my hippie art teacher used to wear? Um, hardly a design or business icon. And I, yeah, like we've said, I definitely held that opinion until quite recently. Um, yeah, what's the fuss about? It's a sandal, right? But the more I've delved into the design philosophy and the business story, um, this is one of those brands a bit like. Kind of feels a bit like Aesop to me that I've really come to admire, um, particularly when it comes to their sort of philosophy on sustainability and controlled sort of slower growth, which, you know, pretty admirable given how popular they are. And they could be, you know, probably much bigger than they are, but we, we'll, we'll definitely get into that a little later. Um, cause those, those kind of attributes are things that feel like contemporary startups try to live. And this is an old shoemaker that's been, 
like taking this shit seriously for centuries, right? So lot to learn from them. So yeah, do have a newfound respect. Um and I think one of the reasons we're featuring them today is because they are experiencing a wave at the moment, right? We've kind of alluded to the fact that um 2022 2023 you started seeing them everywhere and that feels really connected to this sort of post-covid comfort trend where things like crocs comfy joggers um dad shoes right like new balance um which i'm a big fan of are all very much in fashion at the moment right and these are not instantly like aesthetically pleasing products um but yeah from what I understand, Birkenstock is one of the most purchased fashion brands of 2022, particularly with Gen Z. They seem to be, you know, really um, having a moment there, particularly the Boston clog. I don't know if you're familiar with that silhouette. Yeah. yeah. It's not one, one I could like, imagine having. Yeah. Close that's one, one, right? Yeah, the closed one. Yeah. That's the closed. worst for me. <laughs> that's the one that, like, my grandparents were around the house when right. they went out. So that's what I associate associate with it. And I just can't imagine wearing this to like I don't know, going out or something. It just feels like it's around the house sandal. <laughs> well, I have to say, since since kind of learning about that silhouette, I've noticed like I've got an office in a co-working space and I saw about five pairs the other day. I was like, shit, like I'd not really noticed how many of these are out there, right? So it's one of those where once you once you learn about it and realize how uh, how much of a wave they're on, you realize they're everywhere. Not so much in England at the moment because the weather is terrible. But um, yeah, people are wearing them around the office even the last week. But if if you want to wear Birkenstocks when it's raining, then Boston is the way to go, right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> closed toes, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, very... Um, very much, I think the instant silhouette that comes to mind is things like the Arizona, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about the design detail of. Because I think when people think of Birkenstock, they think of that classic one that um, Alan, if you've if you're watching on YouTube, held up the kind of double strap um, leather, um, probably a design that's been unchanged for many decades. Um, but yeah, what really sets Birkenstock apart, regardless of the model that you're working with, is comfort this absolute focus on comfort. So we're going to dig a little bit more into the design and the materials that have sort of made them famous, really. So at first glance, they might not strike you as this sort of design marvel, but like most things design-related, the real kind of beauty and innovation is sort of beneath the surface. And the Arizona is that sort of hero product. Uh, and like I say, probably the one that comes to mind. So from the top, um, the Arizona's buckle is made from this like really, uh, sorry, the strap's made from this very, very high-quality leather. Um, and then it's got these sort of embossed buckles that say Birkenstock on. I don't know if it's split across both buckles. Is it like Birken and, and then Stock? You've got one. No, there, it's um, no. pretty no. sure it's the same. Same on both. Yeah, yeah. same on both. Yeah. yeah. And that's made from this sort of enameled. Oh, look at those extreme close up. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> Start the box. <laughs> no, no, I it's fine. I, I, I implore people to go on YouTube to have a good look at um, Alan's shoes. Or just Google Arizona. Google Ar Arizona. Um, yeah, the kind of brown colorway is the, probably the, the most uh, common one. Um, but yeah, made from this sort of enameled nickel three metal. High quality stuff that keeps it um, corrosion free. And then there's the, the famous footbed. So that's the bit that touch your skin touches. Um, unless you're a socks and sandals kind of person, no no judgment here. 
Um, I've seen plenty of people much younger than me rocking that look really well. Definitely couldn't do that myself. Um, so the top part of the footbed, that's made from layers of suede, which is the bit that your skin sort of touches immediately, and jute, which is this sort of rough fibre um, that's kind of woven into these um, matting. Uh, it's made from the stems of like some sort of tropical plant um, and then put into this matting that's kind of glued together and moulded um, with the suede. And then the main part of the footbed is where Birkenstock is like unique and probably most famous for its innovation. And that bit's made primarily from cork. So that's like the thick part that goes below the suede and the jute. And that, you know, that's a completely renewable resource um, that Birkenstock farm themselves. Um, and it's the clever bit is that cork, um, which I believe is like combined with natural latex, is molded inside to the foot's sort of na natural contours. So when you look at a fresh pair, it looks like it's got sort of toes in it and um, a really pronounced like arch. Yeah. Uh, but then over time, that footbed sort of molds to the shape of your feet, um, just subtly, which is where that breaking end period is. And that is the kind of killer feature. That's where it's got this incredible support because over time it's going to fit you like a glove. So, yeah, I, I, you said you didn't really notice the breaking in period, but people say that once that footbed has broken in, mm. um, it is like working on a cloud. It's like it's been absolutely custom made for your feet, which you really don't get with a lot of modern footwear. Um, yeah, did you find that with, with them? Have they got more comfortable over time, Alan? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, they were comfortable since the beginning, but it is one of those things where it like, gets molded to your... Uh, um to your feet um i mean i generally find the same process with most of the shoe wear that i have so i wouldn't say that this like breaking in is so uh so unique but what is unique is just by default they are just done in a way that's uh healthy for your feet mm. you know that's what i find super unique about them and i think i might have a different version i think i bought the vegan version of Arizona oh, okay. so it has like different layers and like the leather on top is not actual leather mm. but you wouldn't notice that from looking at them uh, mm. which is also it's a highly highly yeah high quality made product really cool also yeah the quality looks like next level um so yeah these things aren't just about comfort they're also absolutely built to last um I was like reading stories online of people who've had these things for decades. Like there was a dude who had these Arizonas for like 25, 30 years or something like that, which is insane. Although, um, have you, in, in the UK, we have this sitcom, um, called Only Fools and Horses. I don't know if you've heard of it. Very famous in the UK. Never heard of it. Only, a, what? A, only, the, only Fools and Horses. Um, Ooh, it's, it's like classic comedy from the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, real British institution. There's a character in it called Trigger, and um, he's this kind of slightly bumbling friend of the main characters. And there's this um, sort of famous concept called Trigger's Broom, because mm -hmm. he's like a he works um, like as a, a street cleaner or something, and he he's having this conversation with the lead characters, and he says, "I've had this broom for twenty years," and they're like really trigger that's amazing it looks brand new he's like yeah 
Um, it's had 17 new heads and 14 new handles in its time. And it's like, yeah, it's not the <laughs> same, same broom anymore. Um, and I think that's a bit like Birkenstocks as well. You know, people replace the um the buckles, they replace the um the soles and stuff. So yeah, they've had them for 20, 25 years, but they've had them, you know, repaired several times. But that's but still this great, in itself right? is awesome, right? I mean, this yeah, is a absolutely slipper. awesome. Like, why would you even repair this in the first place? It's a slipper. But yeah, with this construction, it's actually possible. Um, I don't know how many people actually do it, but uh yeah, it's designed for it to be possible. And that's great. Like that's the one of the things that spoke to me the most about their story and their philosophy. Like these are super sustainable products. Um, in a world in an industry that has really, really contributed to some pretty poor practice when it comes to waste and fast fashion and sustainability. Um, so they're mm. absolutely part of the design design is for repairability. It's baked in from the start. Um and as someone who like increasingly tries to buy good quality items that can last and be repaired, that really speaks to me, which is another reason why I want them. But also I have to kind of live that philosophy and wear out the ones I already have. Um, so yeah, Birkenstock really takes sustainability seriously. And I'm sure that's something we can go into more detail on later. Did either of you watch the behind the scenes factory videos on the Birkenstock YouTube channel? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh my days. So well done. Like a, like a, proper well done video good music <laughs> it's really well done and really also the good. scenes and the let's say acting at the same time not acting of these people mm. like there is usually it's about also hands and people who do this stuff right and then you would just have this one person at this one machine and they would do stuff and then they would sit down and look at the camera not say anything just this would be the only move or they would say do, right or say integrity <laughs> I, I really, <laughs> exactly. uh, the only ones i saw is uh, no, no, no. where they didn't see anything say anything no 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 they didn't i would just say like that's it's the text next way you could do like they just yeah. look at yeah. the camera and say integrity and yeah. then the next person looks at the Quality. camera and says honesty like yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're so well produced so I, I implore you to go and check these out there's a series called birkenstock quality they're like two three minutes each like one about the buckle one about the footbed there's like a director's cut Oh, which um, is really good. <laughs> but yeah, incredibly well produced. And they really showcase that. I'm sorry to lean on stereotypes, but that sort of precise German approach to manufacturing, the factories look really clean. The people look like they take their stuff seriously. Um, yeah. It, it really looks functional, look. but not too modern. Totally. And everything in the air is like, it works. It's not high tech. It's but it, like it's functional and efficient. It really is. And they, they even apply the brand within the factories in a really like subtle, aesthetically pleasing way. I would love to go and do a tour of that factory. It just looked, yeah, really fascinating. And there's still a lot of handmade stuff in that process as well, which, um, yeah, I didn't expect. Yeah. Um, 50 hands, right? Mm, indeed. Yeah, 50 indeed. Um, steps that need to be done by hand in this production process yeah and um yeah go and check out these videos because again it's one of those things that builds in that layer of admiration for me as far as yeah. the process um so yeah that's a manufacturing process that no doubt has changed a fair bit since 1774 um so we are we are going to go back in time um to the sort of origin story of um birkenstock so you know what was the problem that 
Birkenstock were trying to fix with their sort of unique design, those materials that we've talked about, and where did it all start? So I want you to picture this, a small village in Germany called, <laughs> might need Franz again in a moment, I, I believe it's called Langenbergheim. Um, yeah, that pretty good. about right? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Langenbergheim. Even better. Um, just east of Frankfurt, probably the nearest like big German city that people might be able to orientate around. And this is where the story begins um, with a man named Johann Adam Birkenstock. And Johann was registered in the village as a vassal, which I've learned means like landowner. Is that right? Uh, and shoemaker. So, yeah, they seem to that every article about um, about Johann Birkenstock seems to re refer to that title that he had. I don't know if he, if he was like, you know, a rich landowner as well as being like a man of the people shoemaker. But yeah. This this word vassal kept coming up, but um thought you doesn't might know more about that. Doesn't ring a bell. No. Um, but yeah, Johan wasn't just any shoemaker. He really um had a vision. And back in those days, most shoes just had like flat soles. Um, but Johan was really thinking differently about that. He could see the problems with that type of manufacturing, that kind of shape. And he wanted to create shoes that would support and contour the foot. Um, providing comfort, you know, like never before that people were really not accustomed to. Um, and so like most great innovators, he just went out and did it right. And he wasn't just looking to create a sort of trendy shoe, which was kind of the, the thing at the time. He was on this mission to promote foot health. And that's a big part of the kind of ethos, early ethos of uh, Birkenstock. And sure, when we fast forward a little later to some of the um, sort of ergonomic um, orthopedic learnings that they were putting out there. Uh, that was a that was a really important part of kind of their the way they promoted their their product as well. So yeah, this this mission was sort of rooted in understanding the anatomy of the foot and the importance of support for people to have kind of long term good foot health. Um, and yeah, for context, most shoes of that era were not ergonomic in the slightest they were designed completely for aesthetics or status or just very rudimentary basic protection comfort was like so low down uh on the list of user needs that were being designed around and johan was like no we're gonna we're gonna put that top so he came up with that idea of those contoured cork footbeds uh, made with those layers of um, suede and jute. And that would conform to, the, as we know, the shape of the wearer's feet. And this was a real game changer in the shoe industry. And it set the foundation for what Birkenstock would ultimately become and carry on um, being. So, you know, fast forward a few generations and the Birkenstock family like kept innovating. Um, and in 1896, Johann's great, great grandson, Conrad Birkenstock, developed the first contoured arch support, which is now a product that we sort of take for granted, something you can put into your own shoes. But this, again, was a really big deal, uh, marked a sort of significant milestone in the company's history. But I know we're going to get into that one uh, a little bit later, because really that's where the, the, the main story of this brand starts. So Birkenstock brand started with a sort of simple idea in a small German village and has grown to become this sort of global name uh, in footwear. And the nice story is for me, it's all because Johann Birkenstock dared to think a bit differently um, about shoes and what was important in them. So that's 
that that line there is a bit of a clue for my a quick quiz question. Mm. So which design and tech legend was a big Birkenstock fan? And that can it be continued with his pair of Birkenstocks were auctioned for about what two hundred thousand dollars? Mm, we may or may not be talking about the same person. I didn't pick up on that, but yeah, do you want to hazard a guess then? Uh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Yeah. Um, complete, I mean, this is match made in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it just? He was a band of the Birkenstock, Arizona, in tan suede. Um, and talking of like functional, user centered design, and you know, I guess that's what you're talking about, Alan, right? Match made in heaven for Mr. Apple. He also absolutely famously loved New Balance, um, yeah, New man. Balance 992s in grey um that man's and, fit like birkenstocks and new balance he would be so on trend for like 2023 <laughs> and just and just google actually steve jobs original pair of birkenstocks were auctioned for almost two hundred and twenty thousand dollars. well that's <laughs> mad yeah oh, that yeah by, yes but why <laughs> why yeah god <laughs> Who, yeah. who bought it? I mean, did the company try to buy it off of I, the, I the family even, so they have it in their museum? Or who would spend 220k on old Birkenstocks? I came across this number that it was like it listed for 80,000, but then it was finally auctioned for 220,000. Um, I did not click on the link and read who bought it because I was just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe honest, it was it's... sold uh, as, an, as an NFT. Oh, God. <laughs> that would explain the price. It was probably some <coughs> founder in Barclay or something, probably framed somewhere in a in an office in San Francisco. But um, yeah, yeah, Steve Jobs obviously once famously said, "Design is not what it looks and that um, what it looks like and feels like. Design is how it works." And I think this quote sort of perfectly encapsulates the appeal of Birkenstock sandals um, for designers. So usually, I would say here. Like, what is it about a brand that designers love? I'm not sure with Birkenstock that designers realize that they maybe should should love Birkenstock as a as a as a design icon. So I would say this is more what I think designers should admire about Birkenstock. But you know, it's it's up to you. But these are the things that have kind of spoken to me. The first is this sort of timeless design, which I think they completely embody. Because the the form and the function of these sandals in particular, and they have obviously a much wider range of um, footwear now, have remained consistent for decades and decades over the years. Uh, and I think that really illustrates that well thought out design, you know, design that puts people uh, first, user centered thinking, can really withstand the test of time trends. Um, so yeah, I think that's admirable if you can come up with a design that really can can last through generations you know something most designers sort of dream of um and oliver reichert is that how you pronounce it the current ceo of birkenstock um he highlighted this brand commitment by saying we do not chase trends we create classics yeah. and i think even with new designs that birkenstock are putting out there they're really trying to live that kind of timelessness um which, which so, i think is great the ceo has another line so in the financial document that came out before they went public, there's one line that I could stop 
laughing at and it talks about this philosophy that they have um it's just one of those lines that the company writes because they think it's true but like to the outsider it just means like really you really wrote that and it says Birkenstock is more than a shoe it's a way of thinking a way of living okay that might be pushing things a little. I'm not sure I can get on board with that <laughs> but you know there's a lot of people who really and they have some kind of cult following and I can I can kind of understand that particularly like in the 60s and 70s I think you know sort of hippie culture and people probably thought it was a real encapsulation of that belief system and lifestyle so yeah in- i i actually agree with tom that for these diehard fans which these brands have uh created it's actually true and i think this is what the long lasting i think we, i agree with you when reading this i have to cringe it's like cringe, yeah, yeah. I don't know. But, but then on the other hand, about the brand that you love, it's it is true, right? Like mm, Apple, exactly. like yeah, it is a way of thinking. Sorry, friends. And you know what we also who what this reminds me of? What brand? Muji. We said yeah. the same thing about Muji. They created, they tried to create the brand that you can live by. Mm. And for Muji, it's maybe a little bit more true because you can buy products okay. for different parts of your life from Muji, right? You can buy it for your every part of your living of your household for shoes it's maybe a little bit different because well it's sandals so it's not a way of life it's just what you wear but in a way i think every brand who has this long history and was able to create these diehard fans it for them it is that way yeah like you can live you can use the value of this brand to live by um Mm. But yeah, still, for somebody who is not part of this, it reads and feels like, yeah, yeah I don't yeah, know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're in the tribe, you get it. If you're not in the tribe, you 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 cringe. Uh, exactly. But I agree. You're right. It's totally right. Good point. Yeah, there's a bit of an ick to it. But I'd say I mean, more than most, they the, the values, particularly around sustainability and like being able to make these things last a long time, I, I can kind of get on board with that. If you are someone who is maybe moving towards that way of thinking, which I think so many of us are, then yeah, Birkenstock is a, a brand that has lived that for a long time. So yeah, it might, it might be stretching a little, but um, and it feels a little cringe, but I, yeah, there's there's some substance to it. Whereas you hear those kind of quotes from other brands, and you're just like, exactly, yes. Yeah. Um, so the next reason I think um, I admire um, Birkenstock and. I, I'm particularly fond of sort of functional aesthetics, um, sort of utilitarian design. And I think every aspect of their sandal, from the footbed to the buckle, it's 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 designed functionality first. Um, so I think if you appreciate sort of utilitarian design, like Birkenstock is, uh, when it comes to footwear, about as good as it gets. There's a few other brands, but in the, in the kind of sandal world, I don't think there's anyone that really competes. Um, but that obviously has its downside and i think that's where this kind of yeah ugly um kind of reputation has come from and uh i saw this review on thingtesting.com that i thought was like tickled me um this person who who loves them was like they're great but yeah they're a little bit granola ugly um (laughs) but that's kind of part of their charm right and the granola ugly is really because like historically they've aligned with a sort of you know slightly hippie uh vibe you know um we, we'll we'll get on to where these things were originally sold and it was definitely alongside stacks of granola so um but yeah the brand's emphasis on that sort of hip foot health and ergonomics 
sort of exemplifies that user-centric design. Um, their products aren't just about aesthetics. They really, really prioritize users' well-being. And, you know, as a sort of user-centered designer, like find that something very admirable. They've stuck to their guns. Next thing to me is this sort of customization and personalization aspect. You know, we've already talked about the fact that these sandals naturally adapt to the wearer's foot shape over time. Um, and that really creates a very unique product experience. Um, not everyone, but a lot of owners, that makes them become extremely attached to that pair. You know, you have contributed almost towards the design a little bit in some way, and you, you build this kind of relationship with the product which is something that designers would love to get with their own work, you know, where someone feels this kind of real, some people have a real like emotional attachment to, to their pair. Um, and that's, that's very rare, but the fact that it is so unique to you um, is, is really interesting. So um, yeah, yeah, that aspect I think is quite fascinating. The interesting thing is that this uh, already starts with, uh, with buying. So it already starts with buying it by having, such a basic product like basically they have it feels like they have three models right i know that they have maybe six <laughs> but it feels like they have three models but then you have the real leather uh vegan version and rubber version then you have the um brown do you have i don't know how many different colors you have uh i don't know how many different uppers like the shiny upper the mm. um the more leather-wise upper, the rubber upper. So you can basically, you have one product, but it is so customizable by the many variations you can buy it from. So you can start with being part of a family, but still buying something that's very unique if you want. Uh, and then over time, you make it yours by, uh, yeah, molding your own foot into it. That's Did you point. come across? Sorry, don't go ahead. No, go on, Anne. Uh, you, you were mentioning how many uh, sandals or products they have. Did you come across how many silhouettes or uh, like shoes the company has? Apparently, it's hundreds, right? Like seven hundred. Yeah, yeah, seven hundred. But there are five that bring in seventy-five percent of the revenue. Mm. So most people know them for Arizona, Madrid, Boston, Gizeh, and Mayari, Mayari, mm. something like this. So these are the top five. Everybody knows mm -hmm. them for these five. But actually, there's 700 silhouettes. They don't call them shoes, they call them silhouettes. And that's like a model, right? Yeah, that's a model. Mm. So that, that I can get my Arizona in 17 variations, does that count to that? Or is it actual, like, real different models? Let me double check on this and I can come back to you, Franz. As always, you have great questions. I didn't <laughs> double check this exact thing. <laughs> But I saw a great point. thing though. I saw but a thing. I would be super I would be super amazed because for me, actually, when I mean both could be true, but for me it feels like they have like it feels like now let's not talk about their shoes because they also have like closed shoes, but let's talk about their sandals. They have like it feels like they have five sandals, but mm. you can get them in a trillion variations. Yeah. So I'm just reading this and it says, okay, la 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 la. Um over 700 silhouettes by extending our existing silhouettes and launching new styles. So this reads like, yeah, even within maybe one sandal, there are different silhouettes of that 
very sandal. When they say silhouette, they usually do mean a different shape, though. Like in it's a kind different of sh- yeah. footwear parlance, like a silhouette is very much like you would re- recognize a difference in shape rather than a color. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah but they, they, got... they do say our top five silhouettes. Mm. So maybe, and then they talk about this five being Madrid, Arizona, and so on. So okay, yeah, I'm, I'm completely amazed. I didn't think they had so many different. I mean, versions, a lot of them are probably rubbish. Models. <laughs> a lot of them are probably really not very good. So they've got 700. Um, that's uh, probably makes sense that five or six are the most popular. But yeah, quite the back catalogue if they wanted to start, you know, um, pushing other models. A lot of opportunity out there. Um, so yeah, I was going to mention sustainability. I feel like I've already mentioned that a few times, but I think designing a product with sustainability at the centre um, particularly when it comes to physical product design, I think something we need to move towards so much, like how can we make things repairable and replaceable and people have to take a bit more ownership over keeping these things in the world for longer rather than creating something new. Um, absolute, you know, case study for, for that kind of thinking and not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but yeah, um, if you that that really resonates with me and the natural materials right they're using very sustainable stuff like cork you know which um they grow themselves that is taken stripped off the bark of the tree and grows back um obviously they're moving towards um synthetic leathers and things so yeah and then finally i think probably the biggest one is the sort of broad appeal these sandals have universal appeal they're worn by everyone from like little franzis to teenagers to older people um and it feels to me like a showcase of inclusive design you know that anyone can wear them any age you can usually pull them off you're either wearing them for fashion or you're wearing them for comfort um the only maybe audience that um maybe they're not so good for i loved this review i saw on amazon um shout out to manhattan mama uh 100,021 who said maybe they're not for introverts um, she said they're not for introverts because they uh, are always noticed and people ask, where did you get them? So they're definitely a conversation. Like in a starter. negative way? Yeah. Maybe this was a few years ago. Nowadays, people would be like, oh, where'd you get those? Oh, but yeah, I think if uh, when they're not in fashion, if you're rocking some Birkenstocks, people might be like, where the hell are they from? Um, so, yeah. Question, anything you kind of love or have learned to love about Birkenstock from a sort of design perspective through through your own research or any of those that particularly speak to either of you? An aspect or a uh, a product? Uh, either, really. I was thinking about an aspect, like whether there was something around their design philosophy or any of the things that I've talked about that maybe particularly spoke to you, whether it's sustainability or utilitarian design or, yeah, just anything about the design aspects that, um, that maybe through your research has really kind of jumped out to you. I like the being true to values. Um, and I like a few more things where I mentioned, uh, I, I realized a few more things, but I'm going to keep that to, uh, to, for later because I needed to make a point. (laughs) 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 But yeah, this like long lasting values and just staying true to something is, uh, yeah, it's admirable. I really like that. Yeah, Mm. totally. Totally. And their approach to manufacturing is also highly, highly admirable. 
but I won't go into this because I know France is going to cover this <laughs> in detail because it's a huge part of the strategy. And I think also one point, one thing to point out here is this like family business and how those are being run differently from uh, VC backed businesses. Mm. Like this is as extreme as you can get in terms of uh, approach to the business. So the family run business, you go slow, you go with your own revenue, you basically um, just try to focus on survival, you try to slowly and sustainably grow, try to be the best at something versus VC backed money, just like, oh, we have tons of cash, let's just burn it all and try to see if we can become the next big thing. If not, nobody cares, or at least our investors don't care. Despite a lot of the ideas that are backed by VC investors would make sense if they were just family-run small businesses. So I love a story of a family business being so true to the values and at the right time, uh, in the right place to also experience the success of a, a brand that is usually today associated with like, oh, that could only be done with VC money. It did take them 200 years longer, but mm. it's just built on the right foundations. Absolutely. Echo. Yeah. Co-sign all of that, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> so it took them only 200 years longer. Yeah. So it just needs a little patience. Just a little <laughs> patience. But it's not like it's not like the family was uh, struggling for the last 200 years. So that's a big no. point also to, to say, right? So I'm sure the family was just fine <laughs> for the last yeah. 150 years. So, yeah. I agree. So let's go back there again. And Tom... I'm sorry already now because some of my research is a little has a little different results from your research. Okay. Because what I found out is that jo Johann Birkenstock was actually doing nothing else than building regular shoes for almost a hundred years. So this founded in 1774 was yes, it was a Birkenstock, but what this first two generations of Birkenstocks did was what every other shoemaker would do. They just built shoes in their regular shop. And that was so interesting for me that this company built on a history. They said they're founded in 1774. Um, but basically, until almost, until more than 100 years later, they were just a regular shoemaking shop, like every other shoemaking shop. They were making and only, sorry, go on. They were making flat shoes aesthetically pleasing status shoes for the longest time and i do appreciate that the kind of the construction that we sort of touched on came 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 a, a little later i didn't realize it was so long that they were going before yeah. they sort of found that that innovation i i don't even know for whom they made shoes so this is just part of also the birkenstock story and also how they tell the story so i don't know if these this Johann Birkenstock made now shoes that were more aesthetically pleasing for like um, like higher income groups or if it, if it just was like the shoemaker of the town living mm -hmm. a modest life um, and producing shoes for the people who needed shoes that were kind of in walking distance or like ho horsing distance. Sorry for the cliches. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess yeah. hard to find a lot of, um, you know, Probably good not data. a lot of records, <laughs> not a lot of good data for uh, cobblers in 1770s, the darkest Germany. Um, yeah, so, yeah. But apparently, it took until 1896, and uh, Johann's great grandson um, to 
let's say, invent this ergonomic and flexible insole that was contoured to the feet. So it took more than 100 years, the first more than 100 years, um, to actually get from a shoemaker to the invention that Birkenstock was uh, is now basically grounded on. Uh, so this Conrad Birkenstock actually, um, yeah, invented this foot sole or this, this insole uh, that was flexible, that was um, contoured and um, looks now like a, or looked like similar to how footbeds look now. And important or interesting thing for me is that he didn't create shoes with this. So he was basically only one part of the value chain, which was creating uh, these uh, insoles. And he was selling it to other companies who made then footwear from it. So actually made these shoes. So the company um, or the family went from making shoes to making the insoles at this point. Exactly. Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, so were they in, not, did they not have that ergonomic, did, did the ergonomic focus then only come when the insoles came? Exactly. I thought, I thought that they'd had this sort of, this sort of philosophy for a while and then it came into the insole, but yeah, maybe not. Though it sounds like that it was just when the insole kind of started. That's how I read it. Yeah. That in, mm. I mean, it took them a while, I guess, to get this idea, but this invention of this flexible insole that is contoured to the feet, um, was in 1896. Like all yeah. more than 100 years later than the company was actually founded. And then it took another like five years until 1902, um, that this product got refined, um, to be possible to use in factory production. So we're just in industri uh, industrial revolution, right? So shoes are also starting to get produced, uh, in factories. So in 1902, um, this insole is actually, um, also refined to work for factory made shoes and from this time on conrad birkenstock actually spent his whole lifetime in perfecting these insoles so he really focused on and he had a like a passion or maybe i guess it was even an obsession to create these healthy insoles and on the way he kind of invented uh orthopedic shoes so we really need to understand that before this whole thing, as you said, Tom, it was like a shoe was not like a shoe for us. It was all uh, stiff. It was all flat. And uh, Birkenstock actually um, was convinced that shoes that people wear have huge impact on health and well-beings of humans. Um, and that he wanted to create something that helps people walk like intended by nature. Um, and he created these insoles. And he was hired by hospitals and rehabilitation centers to manufacture like custom orthopedic shoes for wounded World War One soldiers. He engaged in training uh, of other shoemakers. So he was the, like say, the person who taught other shoemakers how to create these um, healthy versions of shoes. Um, and in 1913, he finally found the best material combination for that. And that was the cork and latex combination. So it took another, let's say, 20 years from the first idea of the let's make contoured uh, insoles to actually also finding the right material for that. Um, and that was, yes, as I said, in 1913, this combination of cork and latex.
I had no idea that uh, latex, this this is right, I, horrible to admit, was a natural product. I don't know that it sounds like a brand, like a brand name or something. So when I learned that it was a combination of latex and cork, I'm like, oh, that's not very sustainable. But yeah, turns out latex is like from the gum of trees, right? Like you sort yep. of extract it. I had exactly I the same, and this was even before this research, but I had exactly the same feeling or notion of latex. Like it just sounds like like some technological textile sounds like um, lycra or something right yeah, which is, like, is a brand name but um so yeah it just sounds school day when you're researching for a teardown yeah and without knowing this you just gave me the perfect segue for something that's exactly the opposite so you just said latex doesn't sound like a real thing it sounds like an invention mm. like a product okay so to understand the significance of this invention we also need to understand that with this new product a word was invented and the word is footbed mm -hmm. the word footbed or fußbett in german did not exist before that like Makes sense. conrad yeah. birkenstock actually registered the word fußbett with his invention of this new insole and that was for me a mind-blowing moment mm. that was exactly the opposite that you just described with latex i was like footbed this is like footbed is a word that is like i don't know it's like tree it's a word it has always been there but no it wasn't it's it not one created. that i had come across before like i have to be i have to confess it sounds like um like footbed i've always thought of like sole like the sole of a shoe rather than footbed um, yeah. So it was actually a new one on me, but yeah, like we say, um, had no idea that that was the, the the he'd invented that that term and sort of. And that's why I think it's much more um, understandable for a German-speaking person because Fußbett for me is like the most natural word ever. Really? If you translate it to footbed, I guess it's weird right but that's how mm. german language work you just take two words and stick it together and then it's a word Very and it feels like supernatural like fußbett i thought this was a word all my life sometimes you I take realized... four or five words and put them together right <laughs> yeah, exactly. have it. <laughs> i'm just happy it's just two short words it's not five long ones uh yeah i was blown away that actually um yeah 1930 1913 uh with the invention of this uh cork and latex uh insole conrad birkenstock also registered the word fußbett which was the birth of actually the current birkenstock shoe but apparently um there wasn't the shoe yet right no right because yeah. until 1960s when carl birkenstock actually wanted more and became frustrated that they were just one part of the value chain Birkenstock only created insoles. They didn't create shoes. So the founder, Johann Birkenstock, he was actually a cobbler and created shoes. But then for the whole um for the whole half of a century, Birkenstock was only creating um these insoles and then sometimes helped to create these custom-made one-by-one orthopedic shoes for like um injured soldiers, for example. So um as i said in 1960s um karl birkenstock now the son of uh conrad birkenstock the inventor of this insole 
um, he became frustrated and he basically thought that it was just like a shame that nobody saw the product. Nobody knows that it actually existed. Um, so in 1963, they created the first sandal ever made, and that was the Madrid model. So it took them until 1963 to actually create their first sandal, their first shoe. And do you know why it's called Madrid? Because I would expect from German company for it to be called Berlin or Munich or... No idea. Do you know? No, neither. (laughs) Just like... (laughs) The Madrid is the one strap sandal, right? Yeah. Arizona's the two. I was reading about um, apparently wearing Madrid, basically... Oh, I think we lost for a second uh, um but it's because it's only got this one strap and it's quite forward it means you have to have your foot in this sort of claw configuration a lot of the time to keep it keep it s- stable and apparently that really helps strengthen your ankle and your calves um whether that was intentional or not i don't know it would wouldn't surprise me if it was intentional yeah i read the same thing uh, but I didn't come across why the model is called Madrid. What I found interesting when I saw this was why a sandal? Like, <laughs> like why on earth you're doing insoles for shoes for half a century and then you bring the first product on the market? Why are you creating a sandal? It's a good point. Yeah. And I think this was really because of the pride of the maker of this product that he wanted visibility. So now this is just a wild guess, right? So I should think that this company for 50 years tried to make, or even now 60 years, tried to create the perfect insoles. And what they wanted to do is create better life, uh, create a healthy life, create shoes that were um, that are basically good for people. And they thought, and still think that the sole is the most important thing when it comes to the quality of walking. And then it kind of makes sense for you to um, create something where your core product, which is the insole, is visible. That's a very good point. And I think you're right. I think you're 100% right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know if actually it worked already this, um, this way, but this principle of visibility is actually something that there is a lot of talk about even in innovation management right so you know why uh cable of ipods is um is uh, white yeah because no other headphones were white so they wanted to make it visible for other people when you're wearing them that this is iphone that this is a different product and if you bought your iPod and you had it in your pocket, nobody else would see that you actually had this iPod. But if you had the white strings, uh, yeah. then people would see it. So this visibility aspect in innovation is something that's super, super important. And I don't know if this was like an, uh, let's say, innovation management founded um, <laughs> decision. I doubt it because this was all done by Clayton Christensen in the, I don't know, 
Maybe it was McKinsey involved. You never know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Clayton Christensen did his research much later on his um, on his uh, work on yeah innovation management. But I think this visibility is uh, a pretty cool decision or pretty um, nice small detail when it came to why they actually um, why they actually created um, a sandal. So they made their insults visible. Cool. Small detour. Um, how was this product uh, positioned? It was a healthy shoe. It was in close collaboration with doctors. They would be the ones promoting it. So they were still, um, they were still basically coming from their heritage of orthopedic shoes that were treating conditions. And yes, they wanted to go broader so that general public would also wear it and benefit from, um, the upsides of work walking like nature intended but the direction they entered this market was clearly from a medical from a health perspective um and yeah that was the 60s first product um and the next big thing happened in 1966 actually by accident and actually very closely related to their health focus um in 1966 they entered the u.s market and that was done completely by accident. And I'm sure that all both of you have stumbled over this uh, story. So you can also help me um, uh, help me tell the story. I'll start with Margaret Fraser. Anybody knew Margaret Fraser before? No, not before. No, bit of a ledge name. Yeah, me neither. But it took, but it sounded like a celebrity name in a way, Margaret Fraser. So yeah. actually, Margaret Fraser is a German American. Uh, designer, a dressmaker, and she suffered from chronic foot pain, went back to Germany to do re rehabilitation, went into a spa. And in this spa, the doctors and health workers gave her Birkenstock sandals. And she fell in love with them because apparently it relieved her chronic foot pain. And she was so amazed by the shoe that she decided that she wants to bring the product to the U.S., and that's an interesting story. Like you need to be kind of famous and also kind of a get things done person to experience a product in Germany. Call up um, Conrad uh, Karl by the time Karl Birkenstock saying, "Look, I know hey, that you're currently active in Austria, Switzerland, and Germany, and then you know that you're like um, focusing on healthy shoes, but I think you should sell this product in." the US and maybe you don't want to do it, but I would actually be eager to do this. And then maybe Carl would ask, okay, are you like doing anything with shoes? Do you have any retail experience? And then she would be like, no, <laughs> I don't. I just wore them. I love them. And I think they have a real market there. And then Carl says, sure, we can try. <laughs> I loved her vibe. Like, yeah, she sounds great. Yeah, when I learned about her and her story. That like ended up being a great decision, by the way. Do you know like the split of the revenue by market? Isn't it yeah. that they have like more than or almost 50% of their uh, sales in the US? I think it's 70 something. All oh, right, no, 55. Okay. 55. 55. Is, yeah, it's US. So that's, yeah, whenever you see a. Um, a company having larger market share, like especially a German company, which is having 
So German company with such a long history being in Germany and Europe, I would expect to have a bigger market share in Europe than mm -hmm. in the US. But no, 55% compared to 35% in Europe, which means that together, US and Europe is 90%. So it's mostly just Europe and US uh, product. Yeah. And in hindsight, this was one of the key decisions, but it's not even, in my opinion, it's not even a decision, right? Somebody came to them. Margaret Fraser said, hey, I have an entrepreneurial mindset. Let me bring these shoes to the US. And you're just like, sure, why not? I mean, what yeah. do I have to lose? That's completely not my market. If it doesn't work, I don't care. I have a good business here. Uh, so let's just try it out. And I'm just like amazed by first the entrepreneurial spirit of Margaret Fraser. Secondly, by the let's just try attitude of Carl uh, Birkenstock. And by the fact that it actually worked out, even though it didn't look like it would work. No, out, right? not in the beginning, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Margaret Fraser comes back to the US, wants to sell this into shoe stores and shoe stores are telling her, no, like <laughs> this is like, this is ugly. Nobody will buy that. Um, and the last resort that she actually thought of was going into health stores health food stores actually so this is the reform house the the like the stores that oatly started to sell their product to so just think back of our oatly uh um oatly episode uh that was where oatly was also listed so you'd maybe find um uh, so you could have found oatly and um birkenstock next to each other well you couldn't because oatly was in europe and birkenstock was now in the us but just as a let's say picture with words no shoemaker uh, no shoe store would actually no department store would actually list them but only the health food stores would list them um, because they would uh, be close to the other products that were health focused and let's say wellness yeah wellness focused and then the next let's say complete coincidence happened and I still believe that this has nothing to do with, uh, with, um, um, let's say actual decision making was that in the 1970s, 70s, there was hippie culture coming up and they were looking for symbols of counterculture, like symbols of that were basically showing them that they were, would not comply with what, uh, the general, um, the general public would enjoy. And they somehow chose Birkenstock Arizona sandal as the statement against the mainstream. Because by then, in 1973, also Arizona was invented. So Arizona was basically boosted in the US by hippie culture. And that was basically their first appearance in pop culture. And with hippie culture becoming more mainstream, Birkenstocks also became um, something that normal people would like to wear. And eventually in 1986, the first department store, Nordstrom, would list them. Um, and there are again awesome timeline things here. So first in the 60s, they would come to um to the US. Then it would take them 10 years to kind of be picked up by hippie culture, um, another 10 years to be listed by Nordstrom. And in between 1973, the Arizona would be launched which 
is the exact same model that Alan just put into the camera a few um, minutes ago. So Arizona model, Arizona silhouette, um, as they call it, was launched in 1973. It's been enduring a while. That's uh, it's a long time. Footwear does does tend to be unusual in that. Um... Things things can remain pretty popular for a long time. You think about something like Nike silhouettes and things like that, but they're like typically considered more aesthetically pleasing, um, more objectively aesthetically pleasing for something that is so functional and like considered ugly to endure that long is is pretty nuts. Yeah, true. Um, then 1990s. Now we are in 1990s. Actually, also the um the time period that apparently um is let's say created the gen z's love for birkenstocks because they were so popular in the 1990s um the first relationship with high fashion started because kate moss wore birkenstocks on one of the photo sessions in 1992 birkenstock actually had their first appearance at a fashion show young designer called Mark Jacobs would bring them in. And the story goes like this, that the poor dude was actually fired after that. So he was still, yeah, it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really, let's say, mass accepted yet. But you saw that kind of, there was something that was appealing to high fashion in this product. Um, And in the 2000s, the comfy actually got in style. So we had Ux, track uh, suits, and all that along with Birkenstocks became cool. So comfortable actually became cool. And since then, there was loads of collaborations with renowned labels like Celine, Valentino, Manolo Blahnik, or Rick Owens. So somehow, this granola brand was able to establish a relationship with high fashion. They should and do a collab with Oatly. How, really, really how much intention do you think was in that? What in the collaboration space? No, or? in the like did like in 1970s, did anybody think that you like did anybody think that this would be a fashion item? Like fr- from within the company. It reads to me like a lot of things, a lot of these things just happened to the company. They didn't really actively look for, oh, we need to go into this subculture. We need to now become more famous or be used in war by pop stars. But when it happened, they were also not super quick to grab onto it <laughs> and exploit it or overexploit it. And, <clears throat> and that just made it more organic. I think now the company is in the stage where it's like actively trying to, oh, we want to be. We want to be in that space. We want to do these things. But up until that point, it just felt like because the company was built on good, strong foundations and it was uh, profitable, it had enough money, it didn't have to like overextend. It didn't want to overextend. And it was just pleased with being having a stable business. And if anyone actually picks it up, great. But we're not going to do a damn thing about it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it was an intentional thing, no. And I think that's what makes it probably um, resonate more. Like there's an authenticity to it. It's not a brand trying to push themselves into a space. 
And I think we've seen that a lot over the years where a culture will adopt a particular product or a brand or a look. You just think, where's that come from? And I'm sure the brands are taken by surprise as well. And it feels doesn't feel so cheesy or or kind of forced. So um yeah, they probably they definitely, I think what you're alluding to is they definitely could have capitalized on that way, way, way more than they did at the time. You're probably going to come on to it, but yeah, definitely done that more now. No, I think so too. I think the reason why it works so well now is that they didn't do anything about it for a very long time. Mm. So that they actively were like, uh, like you can only be counterculture if you're not culture, right? You can only be <laughs> this we, we, this weird thing that um, that creates a lot of uh, buzz if you are actually positioned on the other on the other uh, end of the spectrum. So yeah. Let's get to this a little later. Now we're in the 2000s. Um, we are actually at a point where Birkenstock actively works together with uh, renowned labels and designers. Um, and now we're in the 2010s. And this is now also the time where we have, um, for the first time, Birkenstock being run by non-family members. So Birkenstock Group was um, was established in 2013. Um, now the there were two co-CEOs, Marcus Bensberg and Oliver Reichelt. They took over the European business. Uh, David Kahn actually taking over the US business. And until 2013, from 1773, Three, the companies was run by people from the Birkenstock family. Now, at this point in time, 2013, it was the first time that outsiders took over the business. And they did change quite a, quite um, some stuff, actually. So they um, started to do closed, like they first already did closed shoes. So closed shoes was something that was done before, not only sandals, but they diversified into beds, mattresses, pillows, and blankets and skincare, something that they were very, like there was, it wasn't easy. I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was very nicely possible to uh, also use the company's uh, strategy and values in um, quality and health and uh, ergon uh, uh, ergonom ergonometric design. Um, yeah, these values were actually possible to uh, translate into these other businesses. And yeah, finally, um, in 2021, uh, the family sold the majority stake of the company to a private equity firm, El Cateron. And this private equity Which firm is owned by is LVMH, yeah. Exactly. So owned by LVMH, the luxury conglomerate of Arnaud, uh, Bernard Arnaud. So you may know brands like um, Dior, um, Louis Vuitton, like luxury brands are all under the umbrella of LVMH. Yeah, it's fascinating. If you haven't heard of LVMH, just really take just not, not you don't even have to pause just open your web browser and type in lvmh and go other images and you can see all the brands that they own and you will be surprised let's say you will be Dude, surprised definitely 
a bit like when we did um the glasses episode can't remember the brand now um, um Warby parker Warby yeah. parker and we were talking about Luxottica. Um, yeah Luxottica. you just you're like this wild that yeah all these brands are under that same umbrella it's a real surprise yeah well the, the, yeah anyway <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so only one chapter left which is now 2023 um company going public right yep um traded on the new york stock exchange am i right yeah that sounds weird is it yeah it is, new it is york. Yeah. um yeah interesting story right uh from 1773 um up to 2023 uh, being going from like one cobbler shop into stable family business into private equity held company into now a public company um also with a lot of let's say interesting steps in the in the company history and while all that happened that i talk now about there are let's say three things for me that stood out like that that completely stood out and that I also think made the company uh, successful and brought the company to where it is now. So the first one, and I think we already discussed that from the very get-go because that's the most obvious one, uh, that they, throughout the whole history, apparently stayed true to their values of comfort, quality, and sustainability. So with all their high fashion um uh high fashion attention they never sacrificed that and all their products if it's shoes sandals beds um or skincare they all speak the same language of comfort quality and sustainability all of what they are doing is building built to last as we already discussed the modularity and the ability to repair even if it's just a sandal um they were are focusing on natural materials from the start right this um 1913 uh invention of this flexible footbed made from cork and latex um still the same thing and it's still natural material and they were also pioneers of sustainability before it was even a thing like with uh, 1988 i think introducing environmentally friendly glue to glue together their um insole with the outer sole um 1919 trying to actively reduce the energy consumption in their um in their um in their production so all of that being true to these values comfort quality and sustainability i think what that created with this group of diehard fans like just people who are actually believing what Alan, you you cited from the from the um, from the annual report that it's not only a shoe; it's a way of life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that's an interesting thing. But at the same time, I think we saw we 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 said that also about other companies, right? Staying true to their values for a very long time. That's also something that we said about Muji, for example. Yeah, but so, the thing there is like you, in order to be durable as a company, you need to pick a value that either gets amplified 
or the very least like stays a value also for the people because if you pick a wrong value or value that turns out to be oh actually this is not valuable to us as humans then you know the whole company gets into a denial and i think here also for muji and for uh Birkenstock, i think the interesting part here is they focused on a deep value that yeah, it's it's a value that it isn't supposed to change, like it's health, you know, it's good quality, it's things that should stay through regardless of uh, whatever happens around you. And it reminds me of this quote from uh, Jeff Bezos, which is like, we focus on not trends, but we focus on things that do not change. Like, well, every other shoe company probably focuses on trends, like, oh, mm. this is now the new look, and this is how this needs to look like. Birkenstock is like the, exactly the opposite. It focuses, its whole company is focused on the thing that's not going to change, which is ergonomics. Yeah, it might slightly change if also in general human feet change, right? But still, like ergonomics is a value that should stay true even 500 years from now. Yeah, true. Hmm. Unless you're into barefoot shoes, which is the other end of the sort of belief spectrum um, when yeah. it comes to for health but that's a you know reasonably recent um product innovation i guess compared to just shoes you touched on jeff bezos i don't know if either of you are going to touch on the amazon decision that they made um i will i'll leave it there <laughs> cool um yeah actually it's part of the next point um for me what i found super interesting is that they own a huge part of the value chain like they're five percent 95 percent. yeah yeah that's in the document weirdly vertically integrated backwards and forwards so they have their own production to start with right they actually ramped up production in the 1990s where many companies um started to outsource production from germany to save costs birkenstock used the opportunity of the fall of the iron curtain to expand in their production within the now reunited Germany. So 1990s was a like a big, let's say, production uh, focus. Um, and that's where they invented a lot of their own machines of how to industrialize their product production, but still keeping a lot of the, um, yeah, as we said, 50 hands that are still necessary to make this. So to this day, they produce everything in-house and to this day they produce everything in germany is that correct alan if you did you see the same data in the uh in the report most of the stuff is done in germany apart from the cork so the cork comes from portugal because that's just where yeah. no i mean produce it pr- uh, uh, shoes yeah shoes i think it's just germany i think it's mm. five big ones uh yeah yeah german-centric production footprint 100 done in eu but it doesn't say if it's just germany but it's definitely eu only um yeah then the next one is the cork right so it's not only that they are using european cork and leather it's also that they grow their own cork i didn't find numbers of how much of their cork they grow themselves but they do grow their own cork so it's not only production but it's also vertically integrated to some raw materials then forward integration they run their own stores um 
I don't know. I, I don't know the actual number, but I found something about 54 stores. Yeah. That's definitely not something that is responsible for all their revenue, but 55 stores gives you a lot of control of your, um, experience with customers. It gives you a lot of data from customers. Um, so that's definitely an upside. They were one of the first ones to sell online in 2001. They, basically opened an online channel and 2016 as Tom said they decided to unlist from Amazon because of privacy concerns and counterfeit problems so all of these steps basically just boosted their standing within the community um it gives them control over the quality so again amplifying their value of quality um it gives them also control over uh cost might be more costly than um then uh producing and sourcing outside but still gives them control over cost um and gives them a lot of control over the customer experience so um alan i'm already curious to learning more about the um own channels versus third-party channels share of sales i don't know if you got that uh but i would be super interested in that but um having your own online sales and being one of the first ones to do own online sales plus having 54 stores um definitely gives you a lot of control over the experience customers have with your brand but also a lot of data from how people like your product how people uh yeah. work with your product how people experience your product being able to make these tiny adjustments um that um Birkishop is still making even though not uh changing their co core models roughly 40 percent direct to consumer 40 percent so yeah it was 18 only 18 percent in 2018 uh but now they ramped it up um uh, it doesn't have i didn't find the split uh of like online versus uh, brand stores yeah um but it's 40 percent that's direct to consumer which is pretty good that's crazy. I didn't think that was true for like 54 stores, isn't it? It's actually 45 stores. I mean, I found ah. 45. Maybe it's just you wrote it differently. But um, uh, it's still like, yeah, it's 50-ish 50 50 stores that they own. Yeah. Which is, uh, and 20 of them are from uh, in Germany. So I'm guessing that most of the other ones are in US. I read that only two are in US. Two? Yeah, but maybe that's old data. Yeah, so I mostly went through the 2023 data from September when they were when it went to the uh, U.S. stock exchange. But I'm gonna double check before while you move on. Cool. Um, yeah, last one. Twenty. What yeah. else? Just confirming, it's twenty. Twenty. What? In Germany. Yeah. Okay. Stores. Cool. Um, so the. For me, the most astonishing thing about this company is how they're able to appeal to customers on completely different spectrum. So it seems almost like this is like Schrodinger's brand, being fashion and not fashion at the same time. Like if you go on their website, one main menu point is professional. Mm -hmm. Like it's healthcare workers, it's hospitality, it's utility. If you read through this website, the communication is completely utilitarian. It's about comfort, safety, resistant upper materials, high traction, being anti-static, 
that's one part of their like main website, main menu. And right next to that, there is the 1774 signature collection that features collaboration with uh, Tecla and Dior. Like, like how? How is this possible that you have, like you click one centimeter left and you see shoes that only, and now I'm saying this positively, caregivers would wear. And then you click one right and you see shoes that general public have trouble wearing because it's too high fashion. It's so a from wonderful juxtaposition. Um, I, I love that. I think that's, uh, I, I don't know how much that professional angle would um, be a positive for someone who's like Gen Z buying them because they're like super trendy at the moment. I doubt that's a dimension they're caring about, but I admire the fact that the brand, you know, gives such prominence still to the professional market. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's not really the same as Crocs. I mean, Crocs are so popular in like the caregiving world, right? Like nurses, doctors and stuff like that. Um, so from a practical perspective, there's sort of similarities. And then obviously, again, very fashionable, doing lots of like high level collabs and things like that. So um, yeah, don't know what, do we know what the, you may have, have you already mentioned the split between like the professional market and the sort of consumer market? They probably don't uh publish that but i imagine it's a pretty small percentage that's not you know consumer fashion i did not come across this uh but i'll have a look while you go on and see if yeah. i can find it mm. i was just thinking about how how is this possible like how can you be a brand that is i guess maybe has like a very solid revenue by focusing on professions and at the same time likely being able to get growth through getting more fashionable by the day and by the collaboration. So I think the first points, they definitely help like being this authentic brand that stays true for their, for the, uh, to their values. I think that appeals to both that appeals to, um, your traditional professional customers, but it also appeals to like fashion customers because that's what's now appealing us in fashion having a brand that is true to your values um also the second point of like being vertically integrated i think it helps but uh, honestly i think nobody cares how integrated you are in your value chain nobody like nobody really cares that's more business. <laughs> yeah. people who listen to this probably care but um, <laughs> yeah that's true um i think most important here is that they did everything over these like long time long uh, long term perspective withstanding the te temptation of fast growth like really being organic and very controlled about their um their way of growing and kind of naturally implying um a limited availability so the fact that they're still producing their stuff in-house leads to limited production. You would definitely be able to grow more rapidly if you outsource production, if you work together with um, like external um, companies. Um, wanting to control the value chain, wanting to control where your cork comes from, where your leather comes from, that is also constrained on um, 
the availability of your product. So you don't want to push your product more than what you actually know you're able to uh, produce keeping your own values. So I think by the way of how they did business with owning the whole value chain, uh, they put a limit to growth on themselves because it's just not possible to grow super fast if you own the whole value chain and if you work with natural material and if you want to control where this uh, material comes from. Um, the same is true for like collaboration, right? They did have the chance to um, collaborate with, for example, Supreme, like one of the biggest like brand names also for younger generation. And they turned down this collaboration saying, well, that, that will really help us. We can't grow as fast. This is not values that we want to be, um, that we want to be, um, linked with. Um, one of the CEOs actually said that this feels like prostitution. We want to, we want to, don't want to do this. So don't really, don't really want to, don't really comply with the way he put it, but it just that again shows how they think about uh, fast growth. Um, and instead, I think they made just very smart product and portfolio decisions in order to be able to appeal to different customers. Like they were still having their old silhouettes, but then launching more affordable, um, affordable products like all these rubber-made products with a completely colorful line that definitely helped um also being um also being let's say um attractive to a new line of or a new group of customers um keeping i think all the products unisex is also one thing that helped them to be uh, attractive to um like to the whole spectrum of customers and never yeah never messing with the core of like being uh, quality first and comfort first. And, um, yeah, I think that's what's contributing to that. Yeah. I think that they've been very smart on the collaboration front in particular, particularly the last few, few years or so. The Supreme one sort of jumped out to me because, um, yeah, really could have made big splash in the streetwear world if they'd gone for that. Um, ironically, they had, I mean, one of the first things that signal, signaled to me this kind of youth popularity around the brand was a collaboration they did with um, Fear of God. Um, I would say more, maybe slightly more niche sort of streetwear brands, definitely more kind of minimal aesthetic, uh, and they kept them more scarce. But, you know, not that different to Supreme, but I can understand in their mind, like Supreme is all this kind of hype beast, you know, people queuing up, like lots and lots of drops, something goes in fashion and very quickly out of fashion with Supreme. Um, so, yeah, although they're both streetwear, they, they were really clever with choosing, like, appropriate streetwear brands. There's still that desirability with someone like Fear of God, like Big Time, probably cooler than Supreme these days. So, yeah, again, like, super, super smart um, decision-making. So, yeah, we talked a lot about today, like, they have this 200... 50-ish years of history. So how big did I get in 250 years? Let's play a little bit of the guessing game again. We didn't play it in the last one. So again, I'm gonna um we're gonna compare Bickenstock with uh, three different shoe uh makers, shoe companies. And uh, you, Franz and Tom, you will guess 
does either Birkenstock or the other company have more revenue, yearly revenue? All right, the first one, just as an appetizer, as a, a warming up, is Birkenstock versus Nike. Which one has more revenue? Mm. I think the swoosh may, may be France. What do you reckon? Nike has more revenue. For sure. Yeah. So Nike has $49 billion or had uh, in 2022, $49 billion um, dollars in revenue. Uh, so just to get the feeling for what big means in this space. From, okay. from shoes or from? No, this is in total. $49 billion. Yeah, 49 billion. Now let's get a little bit more into the sphere of Birkenstock. So does Birkenstock or Crocs have more revenue? Um, I'm, I'm going to go with Crocs on this one. I just feel like typically more affordable has been on a similar wave recently so it's not like its popularity's waned um i just see more of them around I, um but yeah as a bigger stock bigger stock okay why just for the fun of it and because <laughs> i think they are big and have uh, higher prices so i hope that goes into revenue yeah it's interesting you can argue both ways because of the higher price, you can say it's higher revenue, but because of the higher price, you can say it's lower uh, volume. quantity, volume. But yeah, uh, the answer is Crocs, $3.5 billion in 2022. Um, and I think it's mainly for the reason because Crocs was more aggressive earlier than Birkenstock. Birkenstock is only now entering this like more, slightly more aggressive growth. Uh, but I'll talk this in a bit. And lastly, does Birkenstock uh, have more revenue than Dr. Martens? Birkenstock. Yeah, got to be Birkenstock, definitely. Don't feel like DMs are anywhere near as popular as they used to be. Yeah. Fortunately, you're both wrong. <laughs> it's Much. very, very close. So okay. 2022 numbers, Dr. Martens, 1.25 billion. Birkenstock, 1.24 billion. Razor. So, Raise yeah, and crazy. Crazy. 1.2 billion or billion billion yeah yeah 1.24 billion versus 1.25 billion so this is going into your notes front the yeah. next time <laughs> you're keeping track of all the i'm keeping track yeah so the closest in, uh... one that we had was uh Sonos, 1.7. 1.7, okay. How much was Oatly? Uh, they were on track to 1 billion, remember? They're, oh, okay. Uh, like they had like 800 something. Okay. Brian's got million. a spreadsheet. You got a spreadsheet now, that's good. No, I just have like uh, on top of my, um, on top of my podcast note, I have yeah. a collection of market cap and revenue of companies. Nice. I just wanted to touch on the um, price thing, actually. I don't know if either of you were surprised that... I, I was really surprised that Birkenstocks aren't, aren't more expensive than they are, given um, particularly the fact that they're made in the EU. You, you can pick these up for like 60, 70, 80 bucks for an, an Arizona with all that, ha that 
you know, 50 hands touching it, the sustainable yeah. materials. I guess a lot of that is the fact that they own a lot of the value chain, but I was really surprised. Me too. And what I was even more surprised by is their gross profit margin. <laughs> this is becoming a recurring theme is like going into the gross profit margin. So just as a reminder, so ESOP had 90%, which was yeah unbeatable. Right. We talked about monotype, which also has unbeatable gross margin because it's a digital product that they're selling 80%. We talked about Oatly, physical product, 11%. Do you want to take a guess at gross profit margin of Birkenstock. So having not such a high price, I agree with you, Tom, having 50 hands touching it, having a complete value chain that does everything in-house, mostly produced in EU, I mean, exclusively produced in EU, mostly in Germany. What is the gross profit margin of Birkenstock? Um, mm, I mean, it, all of your uh, intonation suggests that it's going to be much higher than I would expect. See, I, I, I would have expected it to be around 10 to 15%, maybe 20%, something like that. Okay. But it's mm -hmm. going to be higher, isn't it? Uh, Franz, do you yes. know or are you going to have a guess? Uh, you're muted, Franz. I'd say 40. I, I don't know. Yeah. So iPhone has 44. Uh, Birkenstock has 60. Six zero. 60. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, That's a real that surprise to me. There is mm. only one kind of business, LVMH investing. Exactly. I mean, this is a typical LVMH yeah. purchase. It's unbelievable. They always buy very old, usually European companies, mostly French, now also German company, with extremely high cross profit margins, which means a company has brand power to charge up, uh, to price up their products. They're very durable. This is a typical LVMH purchase. Yeah. I feel like these things could be easily 30, 40% more expensive, um, just, just based on the attributes that we've, we've discussed. So yeah, hopefully they don't start taking the mech. Um, no, I don't think they, I mean, it, it is a highly, highly competitive market. The shoe market mm. is one of the most competitive markets. There is pressure from newcomers. There is pressure from the big players in the industry. It's very fragmented. There's a lot of companies. There's a lot of counterfeits coming. And mm. I was trying to find data on like, how is Birkenstock actually defending its footbed technology? And I couldn't really understand how it's done because I think... The patents also, you know, you, you can't renew them indefinitely, as far as I understand. Um, so I don't know exactly how this is done. So this is one of the big threats they have. But we'll talk about threats in a moment. I, I did you find anything about this? this? Oh yeah. No, I had the same question because I was like, how like this product was introduced, like the foot sole was invented in 1913, and the Arizona was invented in like 1973 and it's still the same thing and then they pull out of amazon because of counterfeit i mean obviously yeah. you'll be counterfeited if you're yeah. a product that works um so the way they talk about it is that this mix of latex and fine versus um not so fine cork in this insole is a similar level secret as the secret recipe of coca-cola uh, okay. they didn't mention coca-cola but on their website they say of the biggest american uh soda maker uh, um so that's how they try to defend it saying well it. we have the recipe nobody else has the recipe 
okay that makes sense i thought that it's also partially because of the value chain that they own and it probably is because yeah. they do own most of it so that makes sense but yeah their financials are very very healthy um i mentioned most of the numbers i found also throughout the episode uh by contributing to the other part other part of, parts of the discussion but maybe one other part that we can uh, go deeper into here is like what happened since the family yeah gave the reins of the company to the outsiders so uh, front you said in 2013 we had the first outside ceo who is still the ceo of the company uh take over and in 2014 the company had 290 million in revenue and now it has 1.24 billion so this means they had the biggest basically most of the revenue sorry most of the growth came in the last eight nine years since um yeah the outsiders <laughs> took over the company and uh are yeah just more aggressive with growth more aggressive with the uh, approach to opening the stores and so on and uh, so from 2014 to 2022 the company grew 20 percent year over year and i wanted to compare this with some other companies in this space uh so lululemon has also in the same time frame 2014 to 2022 20 percent uh year over year growth uh crocs had 13 percent and nike had seven uh so nike it's obviously less because uh, it has just a, had much bigger base that it grew from it was roughly 30 billion and now it's 50 billion and uh yeah lululemon and crocs are kind of in a similar spot or were in a similar league as as uh, Birkenstock and this tells us that yeah 20% is really really good for this kind of company um because it's hard to grow from this base like doubling or tripling like some startups do when they're small so 20% yeah, year over year is amazing and you can see what happens if you do grow 20% 20% year over year for just eight years you go from 300 million to 1.25 billion so that's hard to sustain yeah that's very cool. impressive so that's why company decided to go public in 2023 so that's uh, an interesting story what happened there so company uh went public and the initial asking price was 46 dollars but the market opened at 41 which means straight from the get-go there was a 10 percent uh even more than 10 percent drop in the stock price which is not great so usually what happens when you have an initial public offering is you have a sharp you know in most cases in most well anticipated ipos there's a sharp increase in the price um and that also speaks about the current or the 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 position of the market and the economy at that moment and here we had a sharp decline of 12 percent um which is not great and now the price of the stock is uh 30 uh 39 dollars so yeah, it's a little bit even event down even a little bit uh deeper um so i was trying to understand why has this happened because the company is pretty successful growing pretty well has a very good profit margin it has very clear ways to grow as as, as we said before 90 percent of its revenue coming from us and europe so it means almost nothing ha is happening in china and india which are arguably the biggest uh, markets uh so there's a lot of yeah room for growth so i had a look at some other ipos 
uh, that happened around the same time. Uh, for example, Instacart and Klaviyo uh, also basically um, had IPOs recently, and they were down almost 20%. So we could say that Birkenstock, by being down only 12-ish, 13-ish uh, percent, actually is doing pretty well at the moment. And this is just a reflection, not of the company, just of the current state of the economy, high interest rates, and so on. Mm. So most of the investors just prefer to invest in high growth tech or maybe more stable tech companies like meta google and so on um and just to give you one more data point alberts so another big company in this space so the u.s shoemaker alberts uh went uh, public also some time ago uh they started at 50 dollars now it's less than a dollar yikes yeah, so they That's lost ninety nine percent of the value. So I think you may remember from Warby Barker episode, one of the other episodes, maybe it was Oatly even, that if you have a few consecutive weeks of being below one dollar, then you're delisted from mm. the stock market, stock exchange. So yeah, not the best news for all words, but they're just to put in perspective, uh, Birkenstock, even with the, this decline in the stock price, it's still doing pretty good, I would say. Yeah. One thing that I also found super interesting was that the valuation that we had now is like it was like there was a decline of what eleven percent on day one. Yeah, 12, but the valuation 13. was seven point three billion, right? Something like that. Yeah. Just two years ago, the company was valued at four point three billion, right? So 2020-21, uh, they were sold from family ownership to this private equity firm for $4.3 billion. And only two years later, they uh, are valued at $7.3. The thing that's not clear, though, is like what percentage LVMH or El Caterton bought. So yeah, the purchase price reportedly was around $4 billion, but um, I didn't find the exact percentage. The majority ah, so if it they could be that it was just 55 percent and then basically the company is still worth the same yeah that's true so we're not clear on that but yeah uh super interesting story and i think this leads that leads us nicely into buy sell hold <laughs> this is not an investment advice this is just for entertainment purposes but we'll play a game now where we will each decide where we would buy Sell or or hold, breaking stock, breaking stocks stock. <laughs> Brands, you you should go first. I I don't know if they can keep this momentum with growth. So I think their ability to be this like completely. This brand that appeals to two completely um, opposite target groups um, is only possible by limitation. So that's what we also concluded, right? So some kind of natural limitation made them the company they are right now. So this is why I think it's rather a time to sell than to um, than to buy. Interesting. 
Okay. Because I think the whole company's ethos is based on being limited and not being mainstream. Mm -hmm. And now the company to be successful on the um on the stock market, you need to get mainstream by definition. I mean, you need to grow, you need to um please shareholders and i think that's some com for some companies that works you want to be hip and that is also that basically also backs up your whole story but i think the story and the ethos and the values that um that um birkenstock built does not go well together with um with this new ownership model and with what this um actually needs to be successful interesting yeah good yeah. rationale I, I echo those thoughts about <clears throat> I, I i think it's a, a bit of a shame that um they've gone public really um i understand why i completely understand all the pressures to do that and the opportunity but yeah um it's um but it is what it is i i think i think they will be clever enough to be able to evolve and find that wider market share. Um, I would be buying, and a lot of that would be head. Uh, I think, I think there there may be waves that they go through, like everything fashion wise, but they are pretty enduring. I think you'll still get a pretty healthy dividend <laughs> from from them from a profit perspective every year, um, and from a sort of heart perspective, which obviously you shouldn't. Uh, take into account when you're making sensible investment uh, choices, um, you know, their sustainability credentials, I, you know, really, really admire. But um, see, so yeah, I, I think I would be, I think I would be buying, I wouldn't be expecting enormous things from it necessarily, but it, it I, I've got, I've got faith that they'll, um, they'll continue to deliver. What about you, Alan? So the things, the thing that makes me unsure is just this recent um the acquisition from the private equity firm from uh so yeah family sold the majority stake to l caterton which is essentially lvmh which has proven to be a good manager of brands and that is managing these brands with this longevity in mind so on the one and that gives me a certain like hope that they will know what to do with this brand. If anyone knows how to deal with these brands, it's them. Um, at the same time, I would have, I would probably be even more happy if it still was family owned, um, because then you would have this stability and you would know how it would be run. But in either case, I would be more on the buy side than like sell side, uh, because yeah, LVMH knows how to keep this balance of keeping something, yeah, of of not giving too much of something to the market and still growing, which means usually finding new markets. And in this case, we have a company that is basically unrepresented completely in China and India, and even in certain categories like kids market. So I think there's still a lot of room to grow there. So I would go and be on the buy side. Um, yeah, that's my my point. Mm -hmm. Again, not financial advice, but not. But financial that's advice. a good one. So I wasn't sure. Like 
China is always an argument, like not being there <laughs> and being having the opportunity to go there. Yeah. But you got me at uh, uh, children's market because I think this brand would be great in the children's market, especially the new, colorful, spot on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You were just two decades too early, Franz. So, no, school, I mean, school I don't mean preschooler. I don't mean like <laughs> primary schoolers. I mean, mom's buying for, dad's buying for their babies. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Especially but your whole yeah. family wears Birkish dogs. That's loud. And you look. <laughs> oh, God. Imagine. Yeah. So, this is the, I, I found this really, um, really rewarding one to learn about i think out of all the brands that we've sort of researched this is one where i went in with very low expectations and have come out admiring them enormously um there aren't that many that we do that for um kind of feels kind of aesop-esque from from my perspective um what about both of you what what have you kind of come away with what's been your biggest kind of takeaway from them as a business and a brand for me like it's this importance of survival so a lot of the business it's oh well, let's grow let's find new ways to grow but then it seems that survival is even more important a combination of survival and being built on a healthy sustaining value if you just do these two things you will have a lot of very uh not a lot but you will have a few moments in a company's story where something positive unexpected will happen that will take you on a new trajectory and if you are then organically able to take uh those opportunities and run with them you can become a very good stable strong business instead of artificially trying to create demand huffing and puffing all the way up until your first billion and things like that it's one of those stories that's like a different way to run a company that should be inspiring to to many of us and to our children's because that's the only way to build it is to <laughs> pass it over to your kid no i'm joking but like it, it really is like a um inspiring story i think of a combination of longevity and being built on on uh, enduring values absolutely yeah for me the the most interesting aspect of some or or the brands that are most interesting for me is that they that are able to do a stretch and combining two things that are apparently super hard to combine. Like with, uh, we had the similar story with Muji, like being a brand that combines, that is kind of in the middle of the market, combining design and combining um, elegance with good quality and with affordable price. Uh, so that was kind of counterintuitive uh, and the same is true now for Birkenstock being able to combine, um, appeal, being appealing for, um, utility workers and people in the, um, caregiving industry, as well as, um, yeah, high fashion. Let me spend $500 on a limited edition of, uh, sandals, uh, which then also makes it, um, makes it appealing for like, the normal people in between, right? If you are able to create this spectrum of professional up to high fashion, you're also um, capture people in between. And that was just super inspiring for me how such counterintuitive stretches are actually possible. 
Yeah. What about you, Tom? Yeah, I think um, just shows the just the fact that a lot of the foundational uh, philosophies around um, building products for repairability and longevity, and that you can build a real strong relationship with customers for a long time based on those principles, are things that people talk about now like they're new, um, and they've been doing it for you know decades and decades so i found that very inspiring um and the fact yeah i think we've all echoed this they kind of stuck to their guns of being uh, resisting the temptation to just grow um at the expense of um that philosophy and those beliefs and they are very profitable right yeah. it's not like those things are, are exclusive you you can be profitable and build a business which is not um growth first that is sustainable um that sustainable in the in a business sense but also um takes sustainability sustainable materials and processes seriously so yeah um yeah tip my hat to um birkenstock yeah agree so they're not just go ahead sorry go on don't go on no, I think we wanted to do the same thing. I think this is a very nice point to conclude this one. Mm. Um, very, very inspiring story. Hopefully we can find more of this type. Um, so if you, dear listener, also found this inspiring, there's another thing you might find inspiring, which is our seven-day mini MBA. It's a free email course where over seven days you receive seven emails, each of them teaching you one business concept that's relevant for the work of designers. So to sign up for this, head over to d.mba slash mini minus MBA. So that's d.mba slash mini minus MBA. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Franz. See you in the next one. See you. Bye-bye.